Sublime, shedding light on yin yoga and meditation. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm a yin yoga and meditation teacher and trainer, as well as a licensed acupuncturist. This podcast is intended to be an in-depth exploration of the intersections between yin yoga, Chinese medicine, and meditation. And each episode will shed light on one or several of these themes. This episode is part four of a four-part interview series I've done with Yin Master Bernie Clark. In this final installment of the series, Bernie and I will talk about a paradigm shift in the fascia world that affects how we think about ligaments and what ligaments are. Bernie also talks about misconceptions in the yoga world at large about yin yoga, as well as misconceptions about yin yoga in the yin yoga community. We also talk about the concept of creep, how to think about using props in yin yoga, and also how to think about adjustments in yin yoga. And if you listen carefully, there's a moment or two where I even go full Boston on Bernie in this last installment. Now, without further ado, I bring you once again, Bernie Clark. There's another element to um, this connectivity that you're talking about, the seamless continuity in the body, that is a fairly recent uh, paradigm shift in terms of how we think about ligaments. And mm-hmm. I'm going to butcher this guy's name, the Dutch researcher. Uh, Van der Waal. Van der Waal, yeah. He does wonderful research. And uh, he's looked, uh, looked at when he's in dissection, I gathered, that there's a seamless continuity in certain joints between the muscle, tendon, and ligament. And right. that they're, they're not um, in parallel anymore. And they're, they're described as being in series. And I think that paradigm shift that of a model it would be really good for yin practitioners to try to grok conceptually so i, I was hoping you could just explain that a little bit yeah it's easier to understand it when you see a picture and in my book your body your yoga there was jack van Roo gave me the permission to use his his picture of the dynamite instead of a ligament structure it's a dynamite structure and it's true when you do a dissection you have to choose what structures am i going to maintain and what structures i'm going to destroy the analogy I use is, say you're Michelangelo and you're given a big block of marble and you're told, carve me David. Well, to carve David, you have to cut away a lot of the marble. So you're choosing to destroy that stuff to maintain the image of David. Now, David wasn't there originally. You had to carve that. And so when somebody goes into a dissection lab and they want to look at a tendon, they have to carve away the joint capsule and the ligaments and the bones and present the tendon. They had to destroy the relationship to those other tissues. Now, if I want to look at a ligament, I have to carve away the tendon and the muscle and the bone and the joint capsule, and here's my ligament. Neither of those exist in reality. We've created those things. We've carved them out. In reality, it's more like the rainbow. The joint capsule becomes a bone. The joint capsule becomes a tendon. The joint capsule becomes the ligament. All these tissues are continuous. And so what Jack Vanderwall did was he did a much more careful dissection we tried to preserve the relationship between the tendon, the joint capsule, the bone, and the ligament, and the muscle. And when he did that, he discovered these things aren't in parallel. There's not one on top of each other. They're actually connected in series. And again, it's, it's, it's useful to see the actual drawings of this. And that changed my understanding of why yin yoga worked, why we say do yin yoga when you're colder. Because if the muscles are colder, more of the stress can go into the joint capsule and into the ligament. 
that didn't make any sense if the model was they're in parallel. But if you see that they're in series, suddenly it makes sense. Let's, let's unpack that just a little bit more because I think there's a few points that um, can't be overemphasized. One is that it, I, I had the same exact confusion before thinking that, as you, that in order to affect the joint, it needed to be at the end point of range of motion. Right. Right. But with this, yeah. this new understanding, the, the, the ligament, because it's in series with the muscle, will be affected at, at multiple ranges of motion. Yeah. yeah. Depending on the stresses that are being placed on it, whether it's a yang stress or a yin stress. And as you're just trying to, I think, getting at, when the muscle is cool, relatively, when not that you've had it packed yeah. in ice, but when you're just relatively cool and you come into a pose, the muscle doesn't absorb the range of motion and the emphasis right. is shifted more into the joint, but it's not at a significant range of motion. And this is, you know, important theoretically, but it's also really important pragmatically for practitioners who have a more yang practice, where if they try to regenerate or recreate or reproduce their yang pose in a yin practice, that's where they're going to set themselves up for overstress, I think. Right. Yeah, when I'm warmed up, I can go way out to here. Right. Now I'm in yin class, I can't go there, I'm trying to go there. No, don't try to go there, just go to where you feel something. Go to where there's a stress. And if that means you're not at your end range of motion, who cares? You're getting the stress, that's what we want. Right. Yeah, it's, it's what I call spiritually unimpressive ranges of motion. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I get a lot of people coming to yin yoga because they're too embarrassed to do yang classes. The demographics in my yin class are quite different than in my hatha and my power classes. There's about 50% men, and it's a much older demographic because, first of all, you're on the floor, so nobody's really looking at everybody else, so it's not competitive, and you can just do what you can do. You don't have to try to do these extreme range of motions. Yeah. You just go into sensation. The model of competitive stretching sort of dies away a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know we've talked a little bit about this, but I did want to ask you and, and see hear your thoughts on this. In terms of the yoga culture at large, what do you think some of the biggest misconceptions about yin yoga are? Well, I think the biggest one is this whole thing that you shouldn't stress all these tissues. You shouldn't stress ligaments. You shouldn't stress joint capsules and never exercise your joints. Um, and so that we just have to explain the, the laws of fragility and anti-fragility, that all tissues need stress. And the next one is what we talked about before is People conflate stress and stretch. They're not the same thing. They could be a stress, could result in a stretch, but our intention is to stress tissues, to exercise the tissues. And if a stretch happens, well, so be it, as long as it's not painful. So those seem to be the biggest two things. And that means people are ignoring all the other parts of the yoga. And if that was just it, that would just be exercise. We wouldn't call this yin yoga. The yoga is you know, showing up in the mat, being mindful, allowing the breath to be the whole allowing nature of the practice. Uh, and this whole bunch of other benefits that are coming, mindfulness benefits, energetic benefits, beyond just the physical. So even if there are no physical benefits to the practice and everything we've been talking about was a lie, you're still going to get all these other benefits, which is also fairly well documented in the mindfulness meditation world. Mm -hmm. So people tend to narrow the discussion on yin yoga only these things that you shouldn't stretch your joints. You probably saw this, um, I'm sure you've, you've seen this, but there was reports about some science uh, studies that have uh, suggested that doing passive strat static stretching before 
dynamic activity, dynamic exercise, um, is more conducive to injury. Because this, yeah. gets, this gets thrown in, in, in the yin yogi's face that, oh, look, here's a study that's saying passive static stretching is bad. Right. That, that could be true. And I do advise students that, you know, if, say you're a hockey player and you're going to go play goal for the Vancouver Canucks tomorrow night. Whoa, don't whoa, do whoa, whoa, whoa. You're, you, don't have, you don't consult with the Vancouver Canucks because we may have to end this conversation immediately. We did beat you in 2011, I think. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so but in any case, you, you don't want to go out after doing a, an hour and a half of yin yoga and play goal and go, oh, look, there's the puck. <laughs> oh, look, another puck. Because it's going to slow you down. Your reflexes aren't going to be as sharp. Because the tissues are more stretched out, you're not going to get the elastic recoil. You won't run as fast. So performance in sports will definitely drop off if you're stretching before your sport. Yin or yang stretching. Now, there is a thing called creep that happens to our tissues. If you apply a stress for a long time, the tissues will creep. The joint capsules will be a less, less stable. That's why we have counter poses. That's why we have shavasana. That's why we have time for the tissues to kind of regain their normal elasticity. So, yeah, I wouldn't do an hour and a half of yin yoga and then go off for a run or go play football or something. you got to allow those tissues a chance to regain. In the same way, I won't roll out of bed first thing in the morning and do a... Um, Mysore practice. You got to give chance for the tissues that stretched overnight. Your spine gets longer. Mm -hmm. You got to get at least half an hour for those tissues to shrink back again. So what they're saying is true, but that's also why we have counter poses and shavasana and a few other caveats in the practice. And it also doesn't mean that just because it's not good in this order of sequences, like doing it before right. an act, doesn't mean it's not good. Period. Right. I mean, you shouldn't stretch before sports, but you should stretch after the sport. Um, I, I'm just trying to think. I had a thought there around um, something you were saying. I totally lost it. Um, <laughs> coming back to sort of misconceptions or misapprehensions, what um, do you hear anything from Yin Yoga folks that kind of raises concern for you in terms of what's being how the the the, the topics being presented? Yeah, you know, Yin Yoga is open source yoga. Nobody owns it. Nobody can trademark it. It's not like Iyengar Yoga or Anusara Bikrams, nobody can own this stuff. And Paul Gurley doesn't even certify teachers. Now, he may give you a certificate that you attended his class, but he's not saying you are a certified Jin Yogi teacher. And because it is open source, a lot of people have taken it their other ways. And so I do hear back of people like a Jin Yoga teacher who will start the class, first poses 10 minutes of frog with no preparation, let's just come into frog and then encouraging the students just to wait through it. You know, don't worry about the pain, just let it open up. And I'm thinking, well, who did you hear that from? Because <laughs> that's certainly not what I was taught from Paul and Sarah, and that's certainly not what I teach from others. So there are a lot of different ways of teaching yoga that's out there. And as you know, yin is a relative term. There's nothing that's absolutely yin. Restorative yoga is yin-like compared to ashtanga. So anything can be called yin yoga relative to something else. But if it's yin yoga, and I put air quotes around it, yin yoga in the girly style, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't start with frog. You'd start with something, a little bit of movement, and then a little bit deeper, and then a little bit deeper. You'd open up to that. And anytime you feel discomfort or pain, you'd move back. Now, I put discomfort in quote marks because yin yoga will take you outside your comfort zone. Now, the fact you're going to feel something, but it should never be sharp, burning, stabbing, anything that's painful where you're actually on the verge of destroying your tissues. 
Right. So I have seen a lot of people taking some parts of the in-training and then going way off in some tangent and taking out of its initial context. Right. Um, yeah, and I, I, I tend to hear a little bit too much fixation on, a, on, a, on an absolute binary between yin and yang. Right. That, you know, it's like in yin, you only do this and in yang, you would only do this. And, you know, whether it's in your sequencing, not having a down dog because it's too yang within the yin, that kind of thing, right. it, it, it gets a little too extreme. Well, after swan, down dog feels lovely. So. Exactly. But also you hear some people say yin yoga should never use props. And I'm not sure where they got that from. <laughs> yin yoga wants stress. Sometimes you use props to get you the stress. Sometimes yep. you can use props to allow you to stay in the stress longer. But if you're using props like in restorative yoga to not have stress, then that's an inappropriate use of the props. Or, or never or, use props is not correct. Right. Or another manifestation of never using props is, is, is things I've seen where a class has everybody propped exactly the same way. Right. <laughs> right. Which, again, doesn't acknowledge the variation in terms of what people's inner experience is going to be vis-a-vis -vis that prop. Right. I think one of my favorite questions now when I go to a student is to ask them, what are you feeling? Now, I went through regular training, then Ashtanga training, and Ashtanga training was all about manipulations, adjustments, getting people into certain poses. And at some point, I had to ask, why am I doing that? And now I don't adjust ever. I just I look at somebody and I say, well, normally I would have adjusted that person, but now I go ask, what are you feeling? And if they're already feeling sensation in the targeted area, I leave them alone. How they look is irrelevant. If they're not feeling the targeted area, I may suggest they try a few things, but I don't have x-ray vision. I can't see what's going on inside the body. So I'd rather they try to find the place where they're getting the sensation rather than me put them in that place. Now, that's not to say adjustments don't have their places. You know, massage therapists would be out of work if they didn't have adjustments, but they're trained to sense the body and sense the feedback and feel the edges. You can get that as a yoga teacher too, but... I think it's probably better to allow the student to, to figure that out rather than the teacher impose it. You know, I, I remembered what the, the thread I dropped in my head was a few minutes back, and I, I just want to see if I can squeak it in here. Um, you're talking about creep and how after a pose, or you know, and it's, as a consequence of being in a pose, um, the tissue will have lengthened a bit. There's a, a viscoelastic right. change. It, it lengthens slightly, and then it takes time to come back to its resting or normal length. Um, and the question that often comes up and is, well, how long do you have to wait until you're kind of back to normal? And, right. and people, at least in my trainings, they want a pat answer. They want to be told, it's 44 and a half minutes. Yeah, and exactly. at that point, everybody's going to be safe again. And then they can go run their marathon. And, right. I, and I say, unfortunately, I, A, I haven't seen science around this, but B, I think it's going to be an individual affair anyway. Yeah. Yeah, both. Um, I've seen some studies by uh, a fascia researcher in Italy, Carla Stecco, that says within the first two minutes of the stress, about 90% of the relaxation of the crimp factors in the collagen, the, the folding that you mentioned, is kind of released. That's not the end of the creep, but that's just the end of this part. So the, the tissue is relaxed. But it may take another 20 minutes for it to get 100% you know, of its creep out or done in. So you can, just because you can get two to four minutes to get maximum relaxation, doesn't mean there's no benefit holding longer. You can get more creep, but you won't get more tissue relaxation. There's technical differences there. Mm -hmm. How much the counterpose should be, 
according to the work of uh, Professor McGill, depends on how long you've been holding the pose. If you've been holding for 20 minutes, you're probably going to need about 20 minutes of rebound time. But it also depends how much stress you're experiencing during that 20 minutes and what you're doing before and how your body is. And, you know, somebody who's been training this all the time, they're going to recover more quickly than somebody who's done it for the first time in their life. So I mean, you're right. There is no one pat answer for that. And based on McGill's research, you'll get a sense. You'll kind of a feel whether you're back to normal or not. You know, when you finish a yin pose, there is this sense of fragility. Yeah. You know you did something, and you don't want to go up and run right away because the body just doesn't feel it. So if you pay attention, you'll kind of feel yourself kind of getting pulled back together again. Right, and sometimes people even say after a class they'll feel a little kind of wobbly, like there's yeah. sort of a, a, like a little vibrating wobbliness, um, which again to me would be an indicator that just give yeah. it give it more time. Yeah, don't go play hockey. Yeah, yeah no, no hockey, particularly if you're going to play for Vancouver. Actually, yeah. I should say if you only if you're playing for Vancouver, then then go for it. <laughs> we'll take it. Um, does McGill's research suggest, like you know, you said if you're in a pose for 20 minutes, then a, a rebound pose should be. Or is it a is it yeah. a rebound pose that should be held for twenty minutes? Meaning no, the rebound mode? will make you'll t just if you do nothing, it could take 20, 30 minutes for that to rebound. But if you do other movements, like even cat cow yep. poses, that will speed up the rebound. So a little bit of yang movement, yeah, in the opposite or direction. In the opposite direction. Yeah. Now he he claims for his sporting uh, clients. Like in hockey or basketball, you're running up and down, you're, you're sprinting, and then you come to the bench and you sit, and you're flexing at the hips and you're flexing your back for two or three minutes or however long until your next shift. And during that time, your tissues are creeping, and then you run up and you get up and you start doing stuff. That can be very dangerous for these people because you've got creep, there's no counter pose, and now you're putting a lot of pressure on it and you come back and you sit more. So his suggestion is for people who are doing that is during the breaks, they should be standing, not sitting. Sitting between shifts is the worst thing to do for people, especially if they already have back problems. Right. Because you haven't given the time for the counter pose. Fascinating. Um, it's been great speaking with you. I feel like I've had a great private lesson to be able to pick your brain and hear everything you have to say. I, I appreciate. <laughs> I, I so appreciate your clarity on these things, and I and I really hope that. Uh, your message will be heard and understood and, and internalized by, by many of the yin teachers out there so that they, they feel confident and able, and, and, and able to communicate to their students just what, how important it is to do it this way and, and, um, and so that their students can receive the benefit. Is there anything you'd like to, to leave on? Any, any no, just a, a thanks to you, Josh. I've been really enjoying your podcast. I love their format and their, the quality and the content that you put into it. Uh, just keep it going. I learn a lot from you as well. So. Well, well, thank you. It's got, it just got a whole lot better having you come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, Yin is in. So. Yin is in. Thanks. Thanks, Bernie. Okay, we'll stop there for now, and that will conclude the fourth installment of the interview series with Bernie Clark. If you'd enjoyed the series, we would appreciate your help in sharing these episodes on social media, in your newsletters, or amongst your friends. Sharing, as they say, is caring. And if you'd like to follow along with The Everyday Sublime, you can subscribe in iTunes, and there's a link for you in the show notes, or you can subscribe directly from my site at joshsummers.net. If you'd like more information on Bernie Clark, please visit his wonderful website, yinyoga.com. That's yinyoga.com, as well as two of his great books, 
The Complete Guide to Yin Yoga, and his more recent book, Your Body, Your Yoga. If you'd like to train in yin yoga with me, you can look at all my offerings at yinyogaschool.com. That's yinyogaschool.com. And as always, I look forward to sharing more insights from my practice to yours in subsequent episodes of The Everyday Sublime. For now, thanks for listening today, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Thank you.